Good morning. My name is Joe. My pronouns are he and him, and one of my New Year's resolutions is to not click on any links about the U.S. election this year. <laughs> Wish me luck. What is your origin story? Our culture loves a good origin story. The comic book superhero who begins life as a clumsy young nerd until he's bitten by a radioactive spider and learns that with great power comes great responsibility. Or the single young single mother who struggles to make a life on her own until she's forced to reconnect with her wealthy family in order to provide a better life for her daughter. Or the local politician who grows up just like you, the farm kid with the wicked slap shot. In fiction, origin stories are dramatic and relatable. The humble beginnings before some external situation brings out the power of the individual, brings out the true nature within, and helps them to decide will they be a hero or will they be a villain. In real life, our personal origin stories are often less dramatic, but they are still Sometimes they are dramatic. I don't know what kind of spiders have been biting you. They're still powerful in shaping our identity and boundaries and morality. The core memories that are described so well in Pixar's movie Inside Out. Most of you have heard me talk about my origin story many times. I am the classic middle child of a traditional farm family in a world where the dairy farm was priority number one, priority number two, and priority number three, I was the kid who loved reading, who loved exploring, who loved making up single-player games because nobody had time to play with me. You don't feel sorry for me, I'm very creative because of it. That's just one aspect of the story. I was also loved, I was taught good values, I was encouraged in my non-farming pursuits. But still, that story about being the one who didn't quite fit in on the farm, not really belonging there, that affects me still. It affects how I position myself on the outside of a crowd. It impacts how I assume differences rather than commonality whenever I meet new people. It impacts how I feel defensive about my hobbies and my leisure time. How I'm insecure about my work and my, my worth and my work ethic, particularly around men with physically demanding jobs. Just a few examples. This story I continue to play out. And then there are the collective origin stories that shape us just as powerfully. As an American, the myth of the feisty underdog fighting for freedom still pulls on my heartstrings. And our collective paranoia about tyranny dominates global politics, unfortunately. And I'm now a good prairie person. It's about time winter got here, eh? We need to suffer a bit. A good cold streak will affirm our resolve and our hardiness. You just gotta dress for it, eh? It's all about the layers. <laughs> the stories we tell ourselves matter. The stories about where we come from matter a great deal. What's your story? Where do you come from? What are your core memories? I love origin stories, so if you feel like self-reflection sometime, give me a call. In the Judeo-Christian scriptures, the book of Genesis is our collective origin story. Bereshit in the Hebrew. That's as much Hebrew as I'll get into today. In the beginning. I'm going to assume that you all know the basics of this story. We've heard it already. Out of, create, out of nothing, creator spoke everything into being. Let there be light. And there was 
light. This is going to be an audience participation sermon, so don't sit on your hands too much. And God saw that it was good. This is a pretty popular creation story, probably the most well-known creation story in the history of humanity. And I'm also going to assume that you already have a pretty good idea of what you think of it. I mean, Rick already alluded to this debate about creation and evolution. Um, most of us would probably have a side there or feel that we need to pick a side there. There are several different ways about that Christians understand this first chapter of Genesis. And much ink has been spilled and many bites of digital insults have been hurled in the various debates around this story and what we are to do with it. I suspect that some of you already spun off in that direction during the children's story. Is this version that the pastor is reading, is this version faithful to the original? Is it scientifically valid? Did they get the timeline right? Why did they bring Adam and Eve into the Genesis 1 story when clearly they didn't show up until Genesis chapter 2? I mean, you gotta be clear and precise with these impressionable young ones, right? Anybody else thinking that stuff? Just me? What were the rest of you guys doing? Just enjoying the pictures? <laughs> anyway, I bring a ton of baggage to this story. I was raised in the middle of those raging debates. Um, I got tickets to the, uh, given to me to go visit the Ark, uh, Creation Ark Museum, ex Ark Experience thing. I um, haven't gone yet. I think the tickets expired, but um, that's part of it. I'm assuming that you all have some of this stuff, or at least are familiar with it. As my seminary professor Rick Watts put it, in my experience, most readers of the Bible come to Genesis 1 with many of their beliefs already in hand. So we've got our beliefs with us. And I think that's okay. There's a lot of space in this story for us to find ourselves in it as we are, to let this story be what it is that we need it to be. And the closer I look at the text, the more space I see in between the lines. This isn't just one story. This is actually several stories stitched together. It's not just one writer, but there are multiple voices pulled together and edited and translated and passed on and reinterpreted and wrestled with for literally thousands of years. Don't worry, I'm not here to give a lecture on the history of biblical exegesis and hermeneutics this morning. I'm just asking you to remember that there is a history to this story. Many, many generations of faithful followers have asked questions like these. What kind of world are we living in? What kind of creator, what cause, what source, what energy, what spirit gives life to it? And what is our place in this world? What kind of story is this? That's what origin stories are meant to answer, to give some idea about. That's what Genesis is attempting here. And this feels like a good thing to consider as we embark on another journey around the sun. One of my favorite ways to hear this text comes from that seminary professor I quoted, Rick Watts. If anybody wants to follow up, um, Rick is a very serious academic and I can send you some very academic articles if you want to um, do some research and um, prove the absolute truth of what I'm about to present. But Rick makes a couple of observations about the way Genesis 1 tells this story. First of all, there's a lot of repetition. It's set up, as we've discovered already today, like some of the responsive readings that we do in church. I will read the light print, you follow along, join me in the dark print. God called the light day, and the darkness they called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. God made a dome to separate the waters below from the waters above. And there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. 
and so on. Obviously, the ancients weren't sitting in rows reading off of a PowerPoint. But you can imagine a family clan gathered around the fire. Grandmother tells the story. And God called the dry ground land, and the waters they called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then the land produced vegetation, plants with their seeds, trees with their fruits. And God saw that then the children get their own line, counting the days. And there was evening and there was morning. I know, the third day. There's a rhythm to this story. It's liturgical, to use a church term. The story is set up to be told in this fashion, as a ritual, a ceremony. It's describing the world in religious terms, in the best sense of the word. Rick said that Rick Watts, I'm not going to confuse you and Rick Watts all day, but he's Australian and has two Ks in his name, so keep him straight. Um, Rick said Genesis 1 might have even functioned as a dedication ritual, a house blessing for the world, so to speak. A second observation. The story has repetition and also a particular sequence. Pop quiz time. We've heard the story already. Can we name the order of the story? What was created on day one? Light. That ah, one's simple. There we go. Day two? the separation, the canopy, the firmament, those of you who know the King James, this arch, this space between heaven and earth as they saw it, skies above, seas beneath. Day three, the land. Yep, the dry land. Separation between the earth and the sea. Dry land, seas, surf and turf day. Day four, anyone, anyone? Sun, moon, and stars. Day five, fish and birds. Fish and birds together. Would have been an interesting day. <laughs> day six, animals. The animal kingdom is there. So that's the order. See any pattern in there? I remember trying to memorize this in Sunday school. It was hard to keep it straight. I kept wanting to put the sun, moon, and stars earlier in the process. Seems like those would be pretty essential long before day four. Where's the light coming from? How does gravity work without sun, moon, and stars? How do you even have days and nights when that is literally a time frame defined by the rising and setting of the sun? Kindergarten questions. Rick Watts would say those aren't the questions that Genesis 1 is trying to answer. Instead, he sees this pattern. Day one, two, and three are all about building, creating the day and night as separate spaces, crafting the separation between the sky above and the sea beneath, drawing out the dry land, making space for oceans and lakes and rivers. So first we build, and then on day four, five, and six, we go back through that sequence, filling those new created spaces with motion and life hanging the sun, moon, and stars in the sky, stalking the oceans with fish and spreading the birds through the air, releasing the herds to roam and the colonies to burrow. I like that. It's a helpful pattern, building and then filling. If you've ever done home renovations, you, can, you know that sequence. And it works better if you can keep them separate. 
Rick was, Rick Watts, was initially trained as an engineer, so it makes sense that he would spot this. First you build, craft, create the space, and then you fill it with the things for which it was intended. And again, you can imagine how this story might have been told in the ancient days, perhaps in a religious setting, a priest or rabbi in front of their congregation, lots of hand-waving to draw the parallels with the space around them. First, God laid out the space, the, set the boundaries between light and dark, the lines of space and time. And then, look, God laid out the beams, the arches, the canopy on day two, and then the floor, the furniture, the holy water on day three. It's a beautiful space, the priest says, but is empty. This space is meant for a purpose. And so God went back and God hung the lights in the sky, the chandeliers, the disco balls, if you're into that kind of church. And God filled the sky with birds and the waters with fish. God made the ground floor team with creatures, some tame, some wild. Look around, we have some of both here today. That's what God has made, this beautiful space, not just to be looked at, but to be filled with life, a wonderful piece of art and architecture, alive with meaning and purpose and spirit. And God saw that it was good. That preaches, hey? Another observation. Rick points out that the Hebrew Bible is awash with architectural imagery when describing creation. It speaks of the foundations of the earth, the pillars of the earth and of the heavens, the windows of heaven, the stretching out of the heavens like a canopy or a tent, and the storehouses. But what kind of building is this, Rick asks. As Isaiah 66, 1 makes clear, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me and where will my resting place be? Where does one find a throne and a footstool if not in a palace? And what is the palace of Yahweh if not a temple? In this sense, the whole of creation is seen as Yahweh's palace temple. Side note here, the Hebrew word for temple is the same as the word for palace. The temple is the home of power, same as the palace is the home of power. It's the house of power, the house of authority. Similar to other cultures in ancient Sumeria where the word for temple is simply big house, go into the big house. In the worldview of ancient Israel, God, Elohim, is ruler of everything. And what else would a ruler be building but a palace, a house for the ruler to live in, a place for people to come and pay tribute and receive their blessings and receive their instructions and what the ruler is asking of them. Back to Rick. As the great king, Elohim naturally creates realms for the lesser rulers, the sun, moon, and the stars as he forms his palace temple out of the deep and gives order to it and fills it. And as the great king, having ordered his realm, he now rules over all in Sabbath rest, sitting in the great pavilion of his cosmos palace temple. And the priest waves his arms around again, now pointing beyond, look beyond the walls and the ceilings of the building. God has built their house. God has filled it with the goodness of life. Look around you, the whole thing is a temple. One more observation. If you were building a palace temple for an ancient god, what would be the last thing that you would put in? You've seen Indiana Jones. What's at the center of an ancient temple? 
Anyone? An idol, of course, the image of the deity. That is the focal point. That's the piece that everything else is organized and gathered around. The ancients weren't stupid. They understood that an idol wasn't actually the god or goddess itself. The piece of stone or wood represents the deity. It carries its image, literally and figuratively, and the power and authority of the deity, the spirit of God, is breathed into the physical idol. That's what the ritual of installation or that house blessing kind of thing would have, would have been. And so in the Genesis story, what is the last act of dedication in the creation of God's palace temple? Is there an idol of Elohim placed at the center of the temple, one who wears the face of the God, a creation into whom the spirit of creator is breathed? Is there that kind of idol in the Genesis story? Yes, yes, there is. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, embodying our authority within the palace temple. My paraphrase. The whole thing is a temple. That is the story we're living in, says Genesis 1. And our place in this world is to be the idol, to reflect God's image, to embody the spirit of creator within and among us. What are the lessons of this particular origin story? I have several. One is that God lives here. Not here, but here. There's the waving of arms again. We know this from another sacred origin story that we just reenacted over Christmas. Emmanuel, God is with us. The Genesis story affirms that this isn't just Christmas. This has always been the case. In the beginning was the word, as John's gospel said. As I said, the temple and palace are the same word in Hebrew. Temple means big house in that cultural context. Creator has built their home right here. That fills the whole universe with meaning. We are living in God's house. Of course we should take our shoes off. We are the guests where God lives. Imagine if our Christian societies took that seriously. For politics, for economics, for ecology, for culture, this is God's house. And we are not only guests, but caretakers. The story says that we humans are the representatives of God in this house. We have power, dominion, to use a word that has gotten us into a ton of trouble over the centuries. But this power is not ours. We are not given it for our own purposes, but we are given God's power to act on God's authority, to act in creator's name, to share in creator's intentions. I certainly don't live up to that myself, but imagine if we did. Another implication that this story is that this story sets up an interesting tension between sacred and non-sacred spaces. I've been hitting you over, over the head this morning with the moral of the story. The whole thing is a temple. It's all sacred space. Everything has creator's footprints on it, fingerprints. Footprints, fingerprints, I'm not sure what kind of prints God leaves. It's all holy, it's all good. The lines that we draw between inside and outside, sacred and secular, the church and the world, that is all a construct, that is all secondary, that all gives way to this larger reality where everything is holy, everything belongs, all is one. And yet, 
We have this story because it was faithfully passed down by a group of people who saw themselves as chosen, set apart, sacred. We have this temple metaphor because they built and rebuilt a literal temple building with sacred canopies, with walls and courts, with clear lines defining what was clean and unclean, holy and unholy. This temple building is a real human impulse. We want to recognize and name certain places and spaces as sacred, and that necessarily means it excludes other places and spaces. We treat our church building differently than we treat our parking lot, I think, most of us. We need to create these separate holy sanctuaries, altars, shrines, because they point us to the larger holiness of everything else. We need the lesser temples to learn and be reminded that the whole thing is a temple. How do we maintain this sacred temple and also leave it behind so that it doesn't keep us from seeing the sacredness of everything else? There are hazards on either side of that tension. I'm just gonna name that and leave it there for you to consider over lunch today. One more, perhaps most importantly, you are an idol. As I just said, ancient Israel had a literal physical temple in Jerusalem for most of its existence. When you entered the temple ground, if you were part of the right categories of ethnicity, gender, class, and morality, then you could go in further and further. You would find a larger courtyard and then a smaller courtyard and then into the temple building itself. And then within, a temple, within the temple sanctuary, there was a smaller cube-shaped room partitioned away from the rest the Holy of Holies. And again, in any other ancient religion, in the center of the temple, you would find the idol, the image of the god, goddess, or multiple gods. As I described a minute ago, the physical manifestation was within this idol was much, uh, was much lesser. It represented the much greater spiritual reality. But whenever you entered into the Holy of Holies at the center of Israel's temple, what was there? Technically, there was a shiny box with a few ancient relics inside. Duly noted, some of you get bonus Sunday school points. But this box was never worshipped. The relics weren't the point. They were there to remind of Israel's story. But these were not idols. They were not images of God. There was no artistic rendering of Yahweh inside the temple or anywhere else. You remember commandment number two, thou shalt not make any graven images. They didn't need idols in ancient Israel because they understood that they were the idols. Inside the Holy of Holies, there was only ever one image of God, the priest, who wasn't there on his own behalf, but it represented the whole nation of Israel. And Israel didn't live on its own behalf either. They represented the whole of humanity. We are the idols. The spirit of God is embodied in us. We bear the image of God. I know we say that a lot as Christians. I don't know if we ever really hear it. You want to know what God is like. Look at the people around you. You want to know what is your place in this world, whether or not you matter in this great big universe? Yes, you are the image of God. You want to know what story we're in? We're in the story where God is living out, God, where creator is coming alive in their creation. You wanna know how to treat the people around you? You are an icon and so is your neighbor. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor 
as yourself. It's the same thing. That's the story. That's where we come from. This is who we are. That is the power within and among us. May God give us the eyes to see, the courage to know and to be known in this new year.